Hi, it's David Avern with the Customer Experience Advantage podcast. You know, we've heard it said that nothing happens in business until somebody sells something. But what if they could sell it again and again and again and again? Today on the podcast, we're talking about subscription models and membership models and membership mindsets. It's the present, it's the future. I am here with Robbie Kelman-Baxter, author of The Membership Economy, and her brand new book, The Forever Transaction. Let's talk about future-proofing your business and your revenue model. You do not want to miss this conversation. I'm David Avern, and this is the Customer Experience Advantage podcast, back in 20 seconds. You're listening to the Customer Experience Advantage podcast with David Averin, featuring candid conversations with some of the most influential leaders in business today. Sit back and listen in, or feel free to watch the video version online. This is the Customer Experience Advantage podcast, and here's David Averin. Thank you and welcome to the Customer Experience Advantage podcast. Of course, if you want to watch the video version, that's on my website at davidavern.com. Of course, we're on all of the audio platforms as well. I'm excited about today's show because we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, which is the whole idea of membership models. Now, listen, we've heard the old adage that says, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. But if you teach him how to fish, he can feed himself for a lifestyle or for a lifetime. Pardon the gender specific reference. There's a third alternative. What if you sold the guy the fish and then sold him another fish every Friday? Even better, what if all his friends got together every week and they consume the fish together? What if they, they got, got badges and swag for how much fish they ordered? What if the fish kind of changed from time to time? And then they got other people to do it and they loved hanging out with other people who were eating fish that they were able to buy that somebody else produced for them. None of it's simple, but it's awesome. I am excited to talk to my friend, Robbie Kelman-Baxter today. Robbie, thank you for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, David. Absolutely. So here's quick bragging about her at the beginning. She is um, she's the founder of Peninsula, Peninsula Strategies, a management consulting firm. She's the author of the best-selling book, as I hold it up here for my video audience, The Membership Economy, one of my favorite, absolutely life-changing for me in her brand new book called The Forever Transaction. Um, she is, has consulted with some of the biggest companies in the world and Weight Watchers, and I'm just looking at the whole thing. Netflix, heard of them. Wall Street Journal, heard of them. Microsoft, some of the biggest ones. She really sort of created the model and coined the term the membership economy. So I want to talk about sort of how the way things used to be and that initial um, interaction and transaction and, and what we've learned over the years and much of it taught and originated by Robbie herself. But let's just jump into it. Um, Robbie, tell me a little bit about, about your business and what you do. And then I want to delve into the whole idea of the membership, the reoccurring transaction, and what that has done to transform the world of business and, and, the, and the people who run those businesses. Sure. Well, you know, for the last 20 plus years, I have been in the trenches with businesses that are trying to build long-term ongoing relationships with their customers. And a lot of them are trying to do that with subscription pricing as a key element, um, but not sure. all of them. And um, I have been writing about that as well, trying to put together frameworks and templates and an underlying philosophy that business owners, business leaders, entrepreneurs can use to 
apply those same principles and get those same kinds of results uh, regardless of what what industry they're in, how big they are, whether they're public or private. So really using all of my learning in the trenches to develop kind of overriding themes and principles that can help anyone. Yeah, and, and to be fair and to, to give credit or credit, you went to Harvard, you got a master's from Stanford, and you've been working with some of the biggest companies, but talk about sort of the transition. We've always talked about loyalty. Loyalty was important. How do we keep people engaged? How do we communicate with them on a regular on a regular basis? But this goes to a different level, which was a whole different thought about, about how do we monetize that relationship in a predictable way? How do we deliver value in a way that keeps people engaged? And we've seen it grow over the years. Tell me what, what was like in, in the early years of your career and where you have seen that, that model grow. Yeah, so... Um, my first client in the membership economy space was Netflix. And that's going back about 20 years ago now. Um, I'd already been a consultant. I was a strategy consultant. I'd been a product marketer. Um, and I started working with Netflix and I fell in love with their model. And what really surprised me was how few other organizations were using similar principles. Um, I had assumed, you know, wow, what Netflix is doing is really smart. They're focusing on doing one thing really well for their customers, and they're continually evolving how they deliver on that promise, that forever promise, um, with that same audience, but they're not attached to the product itself. Um, they're tracking not just acquisition of new customers, but how those customers behave and how long they stay. So you brought up the, the, the point that, you know, loyalty has been around forever, you know, loyalty is, you know, trying to get your customer to uh, stay longer, spend more money and tell their friends, right? And Netflix was really optimized around loyalty, getting people to stay longer, you know, getting them to spend on an ongoing basis and making it easy for them to, to refer others in. And I loved the model because it was so much more profitable, first of all, right? Recurring Remind revenue. us what the model was. We, we have a lot of- Three I, I, DVDs out at a time for about 15 yeah. bucks, 13 yeah, bucks, I was going to say for some of the younger times. people listening, they think of Netflix as, What's a as DVD? what you get on your, right, you get on your TV. <laughs> but I, I talked over you, but, but remind us what that model was because it was very yeah. unique because it was coming on the heels of- Blockbuster. blockbuster. We, so we, go every so night I'll take and, you back. And, yeah. 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 I, I was a young mom at that time when, when Netflix came out and I spent a lot of time in the middle of the night up with my babies. And I like to have something to watch on TV while I was fussing with them. And, you know, it used to be that you had to go to blockbuster and you had to like throw a, throw a, you know, a raincoat over your jammies and get in the car yep. and go pick up your movies. And then even worse, You'd forget to return them, right? And then you'd or have forget to, pay to late rewind fees. it. Right? Oh, right. Yeah. Well, that was in the that was in the audio, you know, in the um, in the VCR VHS in the days. VCR days. That's um, how old I be am. Be kind, right? rewind, or pay two dollars. Yeah. And um, you know, it was just there were a lot of problems with the model. Um, Netflix said three DVDs out at a time. They get mailed to you, and um, there's no late fees. And and there's a bunch of really interesting things about this at the time. So first of all, remember that even though Netflix is a behemoth today, at the time, they were a little startup. In fact, yeah. they were, you know, they started on the East and West Coasts. They were focused on working with, um, you know, targeting customers who had uh, new computers. So a lot of times the flyer to sign up was inside the computer box um, because 
not everybody even had the technology to use DVDs yet. Um, and they could only deliver because they had a mailing service. They could only deliver to people who could do a three-day turnaround because they had a three-day turnaround promise. So if you sent, if you put your DVD in the mail today, within three days, they'd send the next available DVD on your queue, on your list. And you know, just taking a step back, there were a couple things that they were doing that were really revolutionary. Um, they had a clear forever promise, which was high quality collection of professionally created video content delivered with cost certainty, no late fees, in the most efficient way possible. 20 years ago, the most efficient way possible was not going to Blockbuster. It was getting US them in mail. your mailbox. Yeah. Um, today, the most efficient way possible is not getting them in the mailbox. It's getting it streamed to you. And that's what they do. Maybe in three more years, it will be on, you know, via hologram. Um, maybe it will be some kind of, you know, virtual reality that we're living in where we can enjoy our video content. Um, but they're committed to the best way possible with cost certainty, broadest selection of quality content. And that hasn't changed. And it's that kind of little nugget that got me on the path that I'm on today, which is helping organizations figure out what is your promise? And then how do we optimize the entire experience around driving loyalty, engagement, trust, and then for many organizations, that holy grail of predictable recurring revenue. Right, so talk to me about, because as we go back a little bit, I remember the days, of course, when we would go to um, the Circuit City or something else, we get the newest version of Windows 95 or whatever in the box, and then they moved to the SaaS model, right? The subscription yeah. as a service, which was ongoing revenue, you don't have to actually produce the physical thing. It's an online subscription kind of a thing. At that time, probably more B2B in many cases. Mm. But that has grown significantly to a consumer subscription model for a lot of things, but then even morphed to membership. Take us through that process and what we've learned um, in that process. Yeah, it's kind of a convergence of value, I think of. So yeah, SaaS, software as a service, was a big move where um, software companies, especially B2B software companies, moved from either boxed software or you know um, enterprise software that was actually loaded onto your servers at your company's location. And if you needed to update it, you had to load more software. If you needed to customize it, you had to have like professional on a floppy services. Disk or something. Right, yeah. you had a disk. I, I mean, I worked in, in, in tech for a long time and you would make this, they called it the golden CD. And that would be the master. And then you'd make copies and send it out to all of your clients and they could send, you know, they could upload the latest versions through this, this DVD that you sent them, this copy of the, of the golden CD. Um, and they made a move from that model to software as a service where you accessed it through the cloud, you access the software, which had a bunch of advantages. It was much easier to get started. Um, it was much easier to upgrade the organization could monitor how things were going and the um, the vendor could, could monitor how things were going and fix problems, help you optimize. They did all the maintenance, all the management. You always had the latest version um, and you didn't have to bug IT, right? So if you were right. in the marketing department and you needed some piece of software, you didn't, I mean, I remember when you had to leave a six pack on the desk of the IT guy and it was usually a guy. Um, yes. If you wanted them yes. to like, put your you know make your software work so you could do your you job bribe and, them. yeah you have to bribe. and i'm like why am i bribing somebody 
to do something so that I can get my job done, right? And then suddenly with SaaS, as a marketer, I could go directly to the vendor and say, yeah, that software is going to help me do email campaigns. I want that. And I didn't even have to ask IT because they didn't have to put it on their servers and they didn't have to worry about how it worked with the rest of their stuff. I could just do it on my own. And that was, that was really great. But, but the problem for the was- the company, the, the subscription yeah. was, gave them predictability, didn't it? It gave, so for, they, they could, the, for the vendor, on. yeah, they got predictable cash flow forever. Um, it was much easier to manage. They didn't have to have a whole team of professional services providers. I mean, there were years when every software company had a huge consulting arm and suddenly instead of customization, they were moving to configuration, right? Which is so much easier to manage. Yes. Um, and so the revenue was more predictable. It wasn't based on the number of, of, you know, consultants that you had on the payroll. It was much easier to scale and grow. And the public markets and the private investors loved that kind of revenue. So they were valuing those businesses higher. Meanwhile, on the consumer side, we had Netflix, we had, you know, businesses looking at ways to build ongoing relationships with consumers as well by treating them as a member, by, you know, thinking about their long-term needs um, and by layering in value beyond just you can get access for a subscription price, but actually layering in other benefits. Like with Netflix, you know, you they you they learn about you, right? And they recommend things. I mean, recommendation engine, which Netflix really um, was at the forefront of developing, was a brand new idea that they would tell you. You know, I used to stand in in, in Blockbuster, and I, I didn't know stare, what movie to pick. Stare. Right? You'd stare at the wall, and you're like, what do I want to watch today?" And now, a you can keep a list, right? That was a new feature that made it easier for you to enjoy the professionally created content because you kept a list so you wouldn't forget. And then the second thing was they started getting smart. They found people who liked what you liked and looked at what else they had watched. And at first it's interesting because it took them a long time to figure out that recommendation engine. At first what they did is they said, oh, Robbie's friends with David. Well, she must like the kind of shows that David likes. And what they learned was just because we like each other does not mean we have the same taste in movies. Um, right. And so they, what they did is they said, Robbie, there's some woman who lives in Houston who seems to watch the exact same things as you. And she really enjoyed this movie that you haven't watched yet. And that turned out to be kind of at the core of their recommendation engine, but they were layering in more value. They understood their promise, you know, providing you with a great selection of content cost certainty, most efficient way possible. And they kept layering in more and more value to help me achieve my goal. And that's really what I think other organizations can do. The SaaS companies took a while to layer in the additional value, um, but they're right. getting there too. Right, it was just content delivery in, in those at days. First. Some, some yeah. magic, right, at first. So talk to us about some more familiar models that, that our audience might be familiar with and how the the learning has grown. I mean, you talk about sort of the early days in that recommendation engine of Netflix, you would almost call that small data on the road to big data. And the big mm -hmm. data, of course, is cross-referencing cross as many data points to be somewhat predictive. And now, of course, you see that in a tremendous way with Amazon and things like that with, with, uh, with Prime. Um, but give us some other examples of, of consumer-oriented subscription models that maybe have morphed into membership. And, and what does that look like? And what do they, what do they, what was the process in getting there? Yeah. So, you know, many industries have been um, transformed both by subscription pricing and by a member mindset. That's what I call it is 
treating your customers like members and saying, what is the bigger goal that brought them here in the first place? And how can I deliver on that goal? So a great example is the world of fashion um, and the world of beauty. Those are those are two really interesting spaces. Um, you know, the, the uh, rent the runway, you know, first they said, you know, the problem, what people want is they wanted to look, women wanted to look appropriate for important high stakes event, big interview, uh, big party, wedding, um, but they didn't necessarily want to own that one of a kind statement outfit. So Rent the Runway was just that you could rent an outfit and return it. They moved pretty quickly to subscription because people who wanted to look good for one event probably had other events and actually just said, you know, in general, when something's important to me, I want to look my best. So they moved to that. They also layered in community um, where they encouraged women to take pictures of themselves wearing the different outfits. So if I'm looking at an outfit and I'm trying to decide if I want it, I can look and see how other people looked in it. So I can get a better idea of what it looks like on, on different types of bodies for different occasions. Um, so they layered in community um, beyond just that subscription access to um, different outfits. Um, another really interesting example in the world of, of makeup, uh, Glossier, new kind of makeup company, they started with community. They asked women um, and men, you know, people that liked makeup, people of all genders, what are you looking for um, and that you can't find? And people talked about it. They're like, oh, you know, I can't find a foundation that matches my skin color. Um, I really want a sparkling eye. I want to, you know, this is too soft. This is too hard, whatever. Glossier took that information from their online community site, which was their original business, and they started manufacturing the makeup. Um, and then they created, you know, so they have community, they have content about the makeup, and then they have the makeup itself. So their membership is really multi-layered. And um, you, know, you can buy the products, you can subscribe, you can access the content and learn, and you can connect with other people who love makeup as much as you. So let's, but let's talk about members benefits. Let's talk about community as a differentiator from a subscription model, which is you can subscribe to anything. We used to be able to subscribe to magazines. They come door to door or you mm -hmm. get 13 CDs for, for a dollar. And then they chase mm -hmm. you around forever to buy the next one. But that's very different than the membership model, which encourages community and connection. Is it an acquisition strategy or is it a retention strategy? Oh, good question. It's all of it. Um, it's so it's a business model and subscription pricing is a pricing tactic in that model. The model says I'm going to focus on the long term relationship with the customer and everything I do, the way I design my products, the way I talk about my products, the way I sell my products and the way I support people who've bought my products are all going to be optimized around this idea of how do I build a long term formal relationship. And so you do everything a little bit differently. Your acquisition, like when I worked with Netflix, one thing that was really interesting to me is they only had one, one promotion, two week free trial, that's it. And you only get to use that two week free trial one time, right? Most companies, including today, most newspapers still today have hundreds of different offers. Netflix had one offer because they wanted clean data and they knew that the reason you had a free trial was because you needed credibility and relevance. Does this product, I don't understand what this product does and I don't believe it's as good as you say it is and I wanna experience it for myself. Two weeks is plenty of time to figure out what it is and you don't need to try it again. Um, so that's a different way upfront at acquisition 
onboarding after the moment of transaction. I know this gets into your area around customer experience. The moment of transaction is the starting line for the relationship, not the finish line. So how do you welcome them? How do you ensure they get the value that they paid for and put them on the road to making your products and services a habit that yields great value for them, right? So you wanna invest differently in that. And then you wanna do that in an ongoing way. You wanna measure recency, frequency, depth, breadth of usage. How engaged are they? If you do those things, you know, they'll all help you with retention. If you focus on the moment of retention when somebody's threatening to cancel, it's probably right. too late anyway, right? Right, then you're throwing in incentives. You wait, don't leave. We'll give you this and this. So, but let's talk about churn, um, which is, of, of course, those who do not renew or those who cancel their memberships. Uh, because anybody who, a lot of companies are looking at subscription models. They see it as the holy grail uh, instead of the, the one time, let's create that forever transaction. And they create the financial projections on a J curve. And it doesn't work that way, does it? Because we have to look at what, what, causes people to leave, which was sort of my book there, why customers leave as well. But, <laughs> but there's things that you learn when you were talking about um, all those things that we do to engage and to learn about them, that requires um, a constant adjustment and, and an enhancement of those member benefits and revisiting of all of those things and learning when people leave. Much of this I learned from you as well. But talk to us about the process of, of retention, of reducing churn, of reinventing yourself on a regular basis to, to create a real um, measure of sustainability, which is elusive for many. Yeah, so I sometimes think of it as the, the party model. Um, if, you, if there's a party at a bar in your neighborhood um, you, and, and somebody says, why don't you go to that party? It looks like a fun party. You might say, I didn't even know there was a party, right? I, didn't, I had no idea. I walk by that place all the time. Who knew there was a party in there, right? That's an awareness problem. Um, doesn't necessarily get into retention, but it's gonna be hard to retain them if you can't acquire them in the first place. The next thing is somebody walks in to the party and they don't feel welcome, right? They don't feel welcomed. You know, I walked in, I stood in the lobby. I didn't really know what to do. It didn't look very fun. So I left and somebody says, well, didn't you love the band? And you're like, I didn't know there was a band. Oh, the band's downstairs. So you weren't welcomed. You weren't shown where the value was um, and you, you joined, but you canceled. Like I sometimes think of that kind of retention issue as a failure to launch, right? You didn't even, Right. You never even got the value, like you, you, you never even gave it a try. Um, and that's usually an onboarding issue. Sometimes the issue is uh, I went downstairs and I listened to the band and the band was terrible, right? Or the band played country and I don't like country, right? So those are different issues, right? The band was terrible. That's kind of an operations issue. Like what was wrong? Oh, you know, the guitar player didn't know how to play the guitar and the singer didn't know how to sing. That's an operational issue or, or the sound didn't work. That's a tech issue. Um, I don't like country music, that's a product market fit issue. Either you're gonna change the band if your audience hates country, or you're gonna say on your front door, we have awesome country music so that people don't come in who are the wrong people. And then the last reason that people leave, right. I think- Or you give them a variety of doors, a variety of doors <laughs> for them to choose the band that they want, right? Because right, that's part right. Of the but the important thing is that they right. know, right? That they know what they're what they're coming in for you know, a lot of people are so focused on acquisition that they're misleading in their acquisition techniques. And if you're responsible yeah. for retention, I had one client where um, they had a streaming content product and they called me and they said, look, we're about to fire our retention team because they're terrible. We want you to come in and talk to everyone about why they're so bad. 
And so we went in and I asked everybody across the organization to talk about what they did. And what we found when we looked at the reasons for churn, the number one reason for churn was people said, I came in for one movie, most famous movie in this country. Um, that was the reason I signed up. I paid for my first month and then I left, right? That is not really the fault of the retention team. When the acquisition team is, that is what every single ad talked about was, we have the movie you want to watch. Sign up and get access to the movie you want to watch. So that's not really a retention issue. It might be an onboarding issue to let them see everything else that's available. But up front, they should have communicated that this is a streaming service with a lot of variety and they happen to have this movie, but check out the other stuff as well. So, you know, I think everybody in the organization plays a role in retention. And if you wait until, as you said, that moment of churn when somebody is hitting the cancel button to say, please stay, you're going to end up probably giving them a discount or additional benefits um, when really what you should have done was solve the problem earlier on or maybe even never taken them on as a customer. Tell me about the kind of models that lend themselves to the forever transaction. Clearly aspirational from almost every business. It's very alluring, the idea of, of getting members for everything. But we also saw some stumbles along the way, even the early days of some of the news sources that said, listen, we're gonna stop printing our newspaper. We're gonna to go to a subscription model. We're gonna save a fortune in hard costs and labor. We're gonna make a fortune. And they stumbled because their biggest competition wasn't other newspapers, it was free content, right? Their biggest challenge was competing against those who were offering the same thing for free. So there's some models that lend themselves well um, and others less so. Take us through that a little bit. Yeah, so we can talk about the. I've, I've done a lot of work with um, with various news organizations, and you know a lot of issues with news. The first thing is if you say what's the forever promise of a news organization? Most of them exist to help their readers understand the world around them or a specific part of the world around them, so they can make better decisions and be more confident, right? Get more enjoyment, better understanding, value. Yeah. Um, but then when you say, well, how do you package that? Well, they thought about packaging hundreds of years ago. That was when they made the packaging decision and they decided on print delivered once or twice a day, um, you know, once a week, once a day, uh, five days a week, whatever it is. Um, at the time, that was the most efficient way possible. But today it's not the most efficient way possible. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is when they did that, they said, well, since we're limited in terms of geography of how far we can deliver this, we're going to do a little bit of everything because this audience doesn't get doesn't have any other alternatives, right? So the San Francisco Chronicle has a little bit of sports and a little bit of news and a little bit of politics and a little bit of business. Suddenly, if you were digital, you could actually really go deep on politics, really go deep on business. You know, the information, which is a, a publication out here, they only cover about, you know, you know, a handful of tech companies, and they all came from the Wall Street Journal, cost twice as much as the Wall Street Journal. Um, they have a fraction of the journalists of the Wall Street Journal. So it's the same people, but fewer of them focusing on a narrow, narrower topic and charging more, right? So there was a change in what was possible. And people who wanted to understand the business world around them to make better decisions said, you know, maybe the information is a better choice for me. So a lot of things were changing. And if they focused on that forever promise, how do I help people understand the business world around them 
or the entertainment world around them so they can make better choices by refocusing, I think they would have come up with, and they are coming up with better models um, for, for subscription, but their old models, as you said, just weren't um, the best available for a new prospect looking around. They were gonna say, I can get this content for free. I can get this content for cheaper. I can get the content that I really care about and pay for it somewhere else where it's better. So the important stuff that I'm willing to pay for is better somewhere else. And the stuff that you have, I can get elsewhere for free. And that was, I think, what, what happened to a lot of traditional media organizations. Um, you yeah, know, probably talk to me about years. other organizations. Talk to me about, for those who aspire to, mm-hmm. uh, to delve into this kind of a model, um, to have a greater level of, of loyalty, of engagement, of predictability of revenue, uh, what's, what are the kind of organizations that lend themselves well to it? Um, which are the ones that really struggle and who's already falling behind because it's, it's made such progress? Where are we yeah. seeing great inroads today? Yeah. So any business um, that wants to have a long-term relationship to their customer, number one, that has value that is ongoing so they can justify it. So, you know, if you're in the potty training business, subscriptions probably are not for you because that is not a long-term promise. Um, Definitely not a forever promise. Hopefully not. (laughs) Hopefully not. Um, So you you have a forever promise that you can credibly deliver on and that people care about and you have competition. As long as your customer has alternatives, um, you, it is worth your while to think about how do I keep a customer once I've invested so much in bringing them to me in the first place. Um, and this really plays out well across almost any business that fits those criteria. I think in terms of, you know, the leaders and the laggards, um, the world of, of content is way out in front. The world of software is way out in front. Um, you know, digital non-physical products um, are the ones that can do this most easily because adding physical products creates a lot more complexity. Um, So if you sell content, if you sell your expertise, um, if you sell software of any type um, and you're not thinking about membership and you're not thinking about keeping customers once you've won them over, you have missed the boat. I think physical products are kind of having a heyday right now. Most retailers, uh, most consumer products companies are thinking about their subscription pricing and how to create membership. And I think, uh, you know, what's coming down the pike, healthcare, durable goods, heavy equipment, uh, much more complicated. You think about like Tesla, for example, subscribing to a car right? It's a very different way of thinking. It's very complicated. You have to have sensors, you have to have software, you have to have the heavy metal to hold the whole thing together. Um, Just a little more complicated. You think about healthcare, um, so much regulation, so many players, but ultimately in the world of healthcare, most organizations focus on fixing people when they're broken instead of the promise that most of us want, which is optimizing our healthy minutes. So let's define something real quickly, because it brings up some questions as you were talking about Tesla and some others. Well, because there's a couple of ways to look at this, isn't there? One is sort of um, subscribing to access, ongoing access to information, um, predictable content delivery. And the other really is, is almost like a fractional ownership. You're renting a part of a physical asset that mm-hmm. you don't have to make that capital investment. You see that within dentistry and others that they will rent. I mean, it, it costs a fortune in, in medicine to buy an MRI or some of those things. And so it is a subscription model. But what comes with that is maybe regular updates or upgrades uh, when those 
you know, those things happen. So, so some of it is sort of a content delivery, which is a consumable. Um, but then there's also sort of a renting a hard asset, um, which is a really different look than what we have traditionally seen. But, um, but it makes sense for a lot of people, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. So the advice that I would give, so let's say that you make MRIs, right? <laughs> um, you're in the MRI business. What you want to do is take a step back and say, who am I serving? And why do they come to me in the first place? Right. And it's like, well, those people have, you know, doctors, healthcare professionals, they have certain occasions where they need that particular piece of equipment to better diagnose a patient. Right. So then you'd say, well, did they, did they want to own it? Do they need to customize it? Do they need, like, what are the, what is the bundle of benefits that would be most valuable and most closely aligned with their ongoing needs? Right. And it's like, well, they don't actually need it every day. Most of the time it would just sit there in their offices because they you know, only need it a few times a week or a few times a month or you know, a few times a day, whatever it is. And you say, and what else would they need? Well, they don't really want to maintain it themselves. They don't really want to deal with depreciation. They'd much rather have the latest and greatest at all times and maybe even pay a little premium for that. And they'd also like to benchmark themselves against other doctors and understand how other people are using it, how other people are interpreting the results that would be really helpful. Um, maybe they'd even want to get together with other people who use MRIs to learn, you know, about the issues that they're facing beyond, you know, MRI machine management. And that's how you start to find what your subscription offering should be is by following the thread of what is my customer coming to me for in the first place? And how can I more fully align what I do for them with what they really need? And a lot of times you can do that by thinking about three categories. Uh, commerce, what products do they need? Content, what information do they need? And community, who do they need to know that can help them better achieve those goals? Does this in many cases um, sort of answer that cost objection? I mean, buying a piece of capital equipment, and not everybody is certainly on, on a high level, um, can be cost prohibitive. Does this make, uh, does it make it safer for somebody to, to rent it, to be a part of it, knowing that they have control, that they aren't necessarily making a long-term commitment? And does that translate into other membership models as well? Does it eliminate one of those, um, the acquisition barrier to make it easier for someone to say yes, and then on the other side, make it easier for the business to continue to demonstrate value beyond the transaction. I mean, I really see it as a win-win for those who do it right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I wrote the Forever Transit, I wrote the Membership Economy several years ago to show people the power of membership. Um, today, I don't have to do that. Everybody wants subscriptions. I wrote the Forever Transaction to break down how to do it right? Here's how to do it. If it's something that's important to your company, here's how to do it. And if it's not working, here are some of the reasons you might be having trouble. And so one of the exercises that I encourage organizations to do is to look at your member journey from awareness through, you know, acquisition, activation, engagement, ex you know, expansion, contraction, retention, win back. And to think, to kind of give yourself a grade on where you're doing well and where the problems are arising. And you gave an example of, you know, well, if the problem is acquisition because the cost is too high um, and that's really where the friction is in the relationship. Like once they join, they love us, but it's really hard to get them to, you know, it's a big pill to swallow that, that price tag. Subscription can be a way to, you know, you can design, let me put it a different way. You can design your subscription offering in such a way 
that it mitigates that particular objection. Um, and that's how you should be looking at your, your full offering is where, where are the opportunities to improve that member experience from awareness through WinBack? And by going deep in that particular area, you can always find little things that you can do that can have you know, a big impact on the likelihood of someone joining and staying. Sure. Talking to Robbie Kelman Baxter, author of The Membership Economy and our new book, The Forever Transaction. Um, as we wrap up here in a couple of minutes, tell me what is the biggest, what's the biggest mistake that companies, leaders make when they're delving into this space? That if, boy, if I could start over again, if I could do it differently, um, what's that, that misperception um, that derails some of these initiatives? Well, there's there's a couple of different flavors of this. So the one that that I find the hardest, and frankly, I always ask this before I start working with a company, is they come in with the tail wagging the dog. They want subscription revenue, and they're not willing to change the rest of their business model to justify that ask of their customer. They're not willing to really consider the full customer experience, what the product offering is, how they sell it, how they support it, how they talk about it. So if an organization doesn't understand um, what else is gonna have to happen, if they're thinking, I'm just gonna slap a subscription price on what I already have and people are gonna pay for it because it's the only thing we're gonna offer, that I think is the biggest mistake that I've seen over and over again. Um, for organizations that are really going into this wholeheartedly um, and really trying to do the right thing, I think the biggest challenge that they have um, is freezing. You know, you, you get through the launch stage, you scale up, and then you don't continue to evolve your offering because, and here's what happens, your customers are loyal, so you think they love you, but don't convert, confuse inertia with loyalty, right? Subscription's a lot about, you know, people just trusting you and they're not looking for alternatives. So your customers still love you, but tomorrow's customers look at your offering and say it's not relevant anymore. It's dated. It's long in the tooth. This is what happened. You pointed out with news organizations. This happens a lot with um, professional societies and associations. Happens with gyms. You know, the people that are there don't know what they're missing, um, but new people do. And so, what I would advise is keep a dashboard. Look at both your retention and engagement rates, but also look at your acquisition. And if acquisition is starting to die down, it's almost always because your product is no longer relevant. Yeah. Or there's competitors who right. are doing what you or did differently better. or better or faster, which is always the case, right? That's disruption. Absolutely. Um, it, I always believe that it's better if we disrupt our own industry and keep asking that question and pretend that, that we are competing against our own company. How would we beat us? Exactly. Uh, I love great that. Great exercise to do with teams as well. Uh, listen, uh, if you want to learn how to do all of this, and, and, I'm, and I'm, only, uh, I'm only promoting just because I'm a fan and I'm a friend, uh, if you have an interest in this, and, and this was what drove much of my, uh, my morning huddle initiative, is what I learned here. Pick up the book. Uh, the, the new one, of course, is called The Forever Transaction. It's a real nuts and bolts. It takes you through the process of identifying those markets, talking about the needs, why people come, why they stay, what are the essential elements beyond that initial transaction that creates something that is forever and is elusive for many, 
Um, but, but it's achievable if you go through all this. Uh, Robbie, if people want to learn more about you, how to get in touch with you, she is a phenomenal keynote speaker, by the way. If you have a conference coming up, uh, as we are finally getting, as I'm back on the road as, as well, hopefully we'll find ourselves on the same platform at some time uh, on the road as well. But look out for Robbie Kellen Baxter, look her up online. Uh, Robbie, if they want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Uh, I'm super easy to find RobbieKelmanBaxter.com. Um, and you can, and I'm very active on LinkedIn as well. So that's a good place to look to. I saw something this morning that was good. And I think I made a comment on that as well. Um, let me uh, just thank you so much for being with I, I am a friend. Uh, I am a fan. I think this is such an important subject and so much where the future is going with all of this, though not everybody does it well. At some point, we get to the point where we have too many. Uh, as my wife and I became empty nesters recently, we went through all of our subscriptions. What do we really use? What do we not? Be that one that people want to keep yeah. um, because you're delivering ongoing value. Um, anyway, uh, thank you so much. Hang on real quickly because we'll talk on the other end of this. This podcast is sponsored in part by the Morning Huddle Membership Initiative, inspired by the brilliance of Robbie Kelman Baxter. You know, some of the most innovative solutions to your biggest customer-facing challenges are likely found within the creative minds of your own people. Listen, friends, it's time to put conversation back on the calendar. You can learn more about my powerful internal engagement initiative by visiting morninghuddlemembership.com. All of my books are available on Amazon, including my new book, which is the morning huddle based on my video series. Well, be sure to click to like this podcast, subscribe, leave your comments below and click the little bell icon to receive notifications of new episodes. You can learn more about my keynote speaking and my consulting at davidaverin.com. Thanks for tuning in. This is the customer experience advantage podcast. Check out past episodes, leave a comment. A big thanks to my guest, Robbie Kelman Baxter. I'm David Averin. Be good. This has been the Customer Experience Advantage Podcast with David Averin. Feel free to leave a comment and be sure to hit the thumbs up button. You can listen to past episodes and be notified of future ones by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. David's popular marketing and customer experience books are available in print as well as Kindle and audiobook and published in multiple languages around the world. You can stay connected and learn more at davidaverin.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>